welcome to Russian History Retold, episode 287, The Volga, part 3. Last time, we covered the middle history of the Volga and the people who settled there. Today, we'll wrap things up. We will discover the relationship with the mighty Volga in the last Tsarist period, followed by the Soviet Union's attempts at controlling and exploiting its power through the reemergence of Russia. One of the most critical aspects of the Volga was its economic impact. As English traveler Catherine Guthrie wrote this about the river, quote, Proud River. It bears upon its bosom cotton, machinery, and ships from England fish, oil, and fur from the White Sea, oars and marbles from Siberia, rich bales from India and Persia, wine, silk fruit, and hemp from the Caspian, its own stream and shores yielding envious quantities of salted fish, caviar, hides, tallow, and bone manure, which is largely exported. What made the Volga so accessible and usable in trade was that it was navigable from about 80 kilometers from its source all the way to the Caspian Sea. There were only a few rapids, all found in the first part of the river. But there was one catch. It is frozen for a good chunk of each year. Typically, it opens in late March or early April and begins to freeze over in late October to early November. It was also prone to flooding its banks during the spring meltdown. During the late summer months, there were issues quite often with insufficient water flowing. Oftentimes, ships would be grounded, unable to move any further. As Adam Oliarius, someone we've found and we've heard about uh, numerous times throughout the uh, podcast, who was a German scholar, mathematician, geographer, and librarian, would write in the early 17th century, quote, The Volga is everywhere so shallow that we could barely get over the shoals. For this reason, in the course of this and the succeeding days, we had many difficulties and annoyances in passing, and on the 10th we advanced only half a league. Aboard the ship was we heard nothing but pull, row, back. One of the benefits of the Volga being a main arterial was the number of other rivers that would link up with it. The Kama River is the longest left tributary of the Volga and the largest one in discharge. At their confluence, in fact, the Kama is even more significant than the Volga. It would bring many goods from the east, particularly Siberia and China. The trade that went up and down the Volga was crucial in the viability of Peter the Great's vision for the city of St. Petersburg. Without it, feeding the growing population of the newly formed capital would have been difficult or even impossible. Due to its extreme northern location, it could not grow the foodstuffs to feed even a small portion of the people who would flock to St. Petersburg. It grew from 200,000 people in 1800 to 1,265,000 in 1897. What was truly amazing is how much cargo was carried by barges, 
as steamboats, popular on the Mississippi, did not begin to appear until 1817. The Beliana, the largest barge on the Volga, could carry up to 1,000 tons of material, such as salt and timber. The biggest Beliana was up to 100 meters long and 26 meters wide. They could only be used on the lower stretch of the river, as this is where it was deepest. For the shallower middle regions of the Volga, the Rashiva was the most popular barge. There were about a thousand of these types of ships moving freight in the mid-19th century. Each barge required a large team of haulers, with the Beliana needing up to 300 men, with the smaller barges needing 25 to 50. These men were used predominantly to pull the barges off of sandbanks, which was a common problem. The average ship, though, would last just 7 to 10 years, but many were so poorly constructed that they were used for one trip and then abandoned. Steamships were introduced, as I mentioned earlier, in 1817, with their becoming more prominent in the 1840s. Problems arose due to shoddy construction, causing numerous fatal accidents. One such incident was recounted by author Janet Hartley. Quote, in 1849, for example, the boiler of the steamship Oka sailing on the Kama and then on to the Volga to Rybinsk exploded and killed four crew members. In 1856, the Yaroslavl hit rocks and sank. While the steamship supplanted the barge for some of the more valuable cargo like tea and other agricultural commodities, the barges remained in service for the larger and heaviest materials like timber. To this day, you can still see brightly painted barges moving up and down the Volga. So how did the barges travel upriver? Typically, they would be pulled by teams of horses. In some regions, men known as burlaki would bear the burden. The number of these burlaki in the 1500s was about 54,000, with it increasing to 100,000 in the 17th century, 340,100 years later, and to over 700,000 by 1870. There's a very famous painting by Ilya Repin, which I really suggest you look up on Google. It's, it is one of the most famous Russian paintings of all time. And this one shows the harsh conditions and rough jobs that these Burlaki faced. Maxim Gorky's grandfather was a Burlaki, and he wrote this about his experience. Quote, So you came on a boat with steam to help it along. When I was your age, I fought against the Volga, pulling a barge which was in the water, and I had to struggle on my own along the bank, barefooted, walking over sharp stones and rocks right from dawn to dusk. The sun scorched the back of your neck, and your head seemed to boil like molten steel. And you, miserable wretch, bent double, your bones creaking, press on and on till you don't see where you're going anymore. You're blinded by sweat, and your soul weeps, and a tear rolls down your cheek. That was a life. On and on you'd go, and tumble free from the hauling rope, flat on your mug, and glad of it. 
Work like that sapped all your strength, and all you wanted was rest. That's how we lived, with Jesus Christ smiling down on us. I measured out Mother Volga three times, from Simbirsk to Rybinsk, from Saratov to here, from Astrahan to Makarev, right to the fair. And that's a lot of miles. When Russia finally began to build and expand its railway system, the traffic on the many waterways gradually diminished. Still, there was a significant amount of material being sent up and down the Volga. But now, with the rail car, exporting goods began to increase starting in the 1870s. What really astonished me in researching for this episode is that the first bridge crossing the Volga only came about in 1880, considering that the Romans built numerous bridges during their empire days, this fact is particularly astounding. To add to this perplexing fact, it would be the only bridge for another two whole decades. One of the most important cities on the Volga in the 19th and 20th centuries was Nizhny Novgorod. It would begin hosting one of the most important trade fairs in Russia starting in 1818. Previously, the town of Makarevo would host the event, but due to a devastating fire in 1816, this would force a move from the city that had held the fair beginning the early 17th century. Nizhny Novgorod is located at the convergence of the Oka and Volga rivers. This made it a logical place as a center of trade. Initially, the fair would house 2,500 shops, expanding to over 4,000 by the mid-19th century. It would begin around August 1st and last until around the 23rd. Here is what Hartley had to say about it. Quote, Goods came from all over Russia, from Siberia, Central Asia, China, Persia, and to a lesser extent from Russia. I mean, excuse me, from Europe. Russian goods dominated cotton, wool, furs, metal, leather, grain, wood products, utensils, pottery, glass, foodstuffs, and manufactured goods. Furs and ores came from Siberia. Tea, silks, dried fruit, rhubarb, precious stones and dyes from Central Asia and China, silk and cloth from Persia. One of the obstacles in holding the fair by the rivers was flooding. This would occur with great regularity, but it did not hinder the tens of thousands of people from attending. It is estimated that over 120,000 came to the event in 1858. The floods would turn the streets into a muddy swamp, further compounded by the thousands and thousands of feet tearing up the dirt streets. What really stood out to the frequent travelers who made their way to the fair was the incredible diversity of people who attended. As Robert Bremner described, quote, Costumes and faces more varied and more strange than ever before, assembled in so small a compass. A white-faced, flat-nosed merchant from Archangel with his furs. He's followed by a bronzed, long-nosed Chinese who's got rid of his tea. Next came a pair of Tatars from the Five Mountains followed by a youth whose regular features speak of Circassian blood. 
Cossacks who have bought hides from Ukraine, those who follow by their flowing robes and dark hair, must be from Persia. To the Russians, they owe them their perfume, the wild-looking Bakshir from Ural. He would then talk about the many people from Moldavia, Nogals, Parisians, Turks, English, Germans, and many more. The fair would be the central focus of trading until about the 1880s with the expansion of rail lines in Russia. Railways provided a much less expensive means of moving freight than traveling up and down the Volga. But as Hartley points out in her book, quote, What is perhaps remarkable is that the Volga and the towns on it retain such economic importance despite these changes in international patterns of trade and means of transportation. That could also, however, be seen as a sign of the economic backwardness of Russia and the slow rise of industrialization and urbanization, something that changed rapidly in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. It was at this time in in the history of the Volga and its faltering relationship with trade in Russia that poets and writers began to romanticize about the river. Nekrasov, Gorky, Glinka, Goncharov, and many others would write about her past and their feelings about her. From Nekrasov, we have the first few lines from his poem, On the Volga. O Volga! After many years, I bring you again a greeting. I am not as I once was, but you are as bright and magnificent as you were. All about are the same distance and expanse. The same monastery is still there, on an island amongst the sands, and evening, even the trembling of days gone by, as I heard the sound of the bells. All is the same, the same, but not the crushed strength, and spent years. Playwright Alexander Ostrovsky wrote the following about the river in his play, The Storm, which was published in 1859. Quote, It's an absolute marvel. Yes, my lad, I've been feasting my eyes on the Volga for 50 years now, and I still cannot get enough. The incredible view, it's sheer poetry. It rejoices the heart. When it comes to art and the Volga, as I mentioned before, there is almost there is one almost legendary painting that immediately pops into nearly everyone's mind, and that is Ilya Repin's Barge Haulers on the Volga. And as I've mentioned before, if you haven't seen it, Google it. As contemporary art critic Vladimir Stasov puts it, quote, Whoever looks at Repnin's barge haulers on the Volga will immediately understand that the artist was deeply impacted and shaken by the scenes that appeared before his eyes. He has touched these hands made of cast iron, with their sinews thick and strained like rope. He further went on to say, quote, With a daring that is unprecedented amongst us, Repin has abandoned all former conceptions of the ideal in art, and is plunged head first into the very heart of the people's life, the people's interests, and the people's oppressive reality. No one in Russia has ever dared take on such a subject. 
this is a massive painting, about four and a half feet tall and nine and a quarter feet wide. Currently, it hangs at the State Russian Museum, formerly known as the Alexander III Museum in St. Petersburg. Anton Chekhov, who was the topic of episode 247, wrote a short story entitled Grasshopper. In it, he mocks one of his main characters, Olga, while describing an idyllic scene on the Volga. And Olga thought of her being immortal and never dying. The turquoise color of the water, such as she had never seen before. The sky, the riverbanks, the black shadows, and the unaccountable joy that flooded her soul. All told her that she would make a great artist. And that somewhere in the distance, in the infinite space beyond the moonlight, success, glory, the love of people lay awaiting her. By the late 19th and early 20th centuries came into being, the relationship between Russia, the Tsar, and its people, along with the Volga, began to change. This is due, of course, to the previously mentioned increase in the use of railroads to transport goods. But something else happened, and it was the start with the emancipation of the serfs under Alexander II in 1861. Millions of serfs bound to the land were now given their own land, although usually not enough to live on. It would rattle the cages of the landowners, even though many were unable to handle the economic burden of taking care of their slaves. Dissatisfaction with the Emancipation Proclamation and the burden it put on the serfs and their former masters was felt even more so by those populating the Volga River and the surrounding areas. While revolutionary fervor was felt most profoundly in the big cities of Russia, there was a lot of grumbling in the agricultural regions. We have to remember that historically, most of the revolts were centered in the countryside, not the urban areas. This dissatisfaction, surprisingly, was not taken seriously by the Bolsheviks. Quite the opposite. They downplayed the peasant unhappiness, viewing them as incapable of intellectually understanding the concept of class struggle. While that last assertion is probably true, the Russian peasant was still ready to rebel against their oppressors. That was most notable in the Volga region. This would come to a head beginning in 1891, when a significant famine hit the area and most of Russia. The winter of 91 was brutal, with temperatures hitting minus 31 degrees Celsius or 24 below zero Fahrenheit. This would be followed by drought and flooding due to snow melt up north, and then a scorching and arid summer of 1892. Writer Alexei Tolstoy would describe the situation like this, quote, Great cracks appeared in the earth. The trees turned color and shed their leaves, and the crops stood brown and scorched. A misty wave of heat quivered low over the horizon, burning every vestige of plant life. The roofs of the houses in the villages lay bare and exposed, the straw having been used to feed the cattle, and the emaciated beasts which survived had to be tied to crossbeams to keep them on their feet. The worst-hit areas were Samara and Saratov. 
As Hartley puts it, quote, it was estimated that two-thirds of horses and almost 90% of cattle had perished, either slaughtered for food or dead for lack of fodder. The peasants had not recovered by the end of the century when the harvest failed again. Famine was followed by cholera and typhus, all the more lethal when sufferers were malnourished. In all, perhaps 300,000 died from the 1891-92 famine, followed by many more from cholera. Added to all the pain and suffering of the people of the Volga, the government would heap more burdens on their shoulders. Under Alexander III, Russification was a primary focus of his administration. This would alienate many non-ethnic Russians, especially those who moved into the Volga River regions under the Catherine the Great and subsequent czars. Nicholas II would continue this myopic and destructive policy, leading to more discontent. While strikes would hound most of Russia between 1895 to 1904, it wouldn't be until 1905 that these work disruptions would spread to the Volga. After the Russian Revolution of 1917, the Volga would be one of the most important regions in the coming civil war. Many historians believe that the inability of the whites to gain a foothold in the area led to their ultimate defeat because of the strategic importance of the middle and lower Volga region. The main towns of the river were centers of armed conflict during the Civil War. Some, like Tsaristan, Samara, Simbirsk, Sezan, and Kazan, were taken and retaken numerous times. Both the whites and the reds would confiscate food from the peasants, causing starvation and animosity towards them. Even though the people of the Volga would suffer throughout the conflict, the worst was yet to come. Collectivization began in 1929, and while it was forced on peasants throughout the newly formed Soviet Union, it was particularly harsh on the people along the Volga. It is estimated that due to the famine that ensued and the repression that Stalin inflicted on the Soviet people, over 5 million perished. On top of that, many of the non-ethnic Russian inhabitants of the Volga region were forcibly deported to other lands, none as prosperous and habitable as their longtime homes. Siberia and Kazakhstan were popular destinations for the displaced peasants. Over 500,000 died on the journey alone to their new homes. And this was during the journey or just upon their reaching their destination. World War II would provide another test of the will and strength of the people of the Volga. Cities along the river were bombed on a regular basis. As Galina Kostarina remembered, quote, When the war started, the entire city literally went dark. It was bombed every night, so lights were prohibited. Our dark, hungry days started. And the most difficult thing was the darkness because not much could be done during the long evenings. We told fairy tales to each other. After the war, the goal of the Soviet authorities was not to remake the Volga as it was in the past, but to completely change its nature and importance. No longer was it the main trade route. Now it was being molded to provide the Soviet Union 
with energy and electricity to rebuild the shattered nation and take it to its next step in industrialization. Hydroelectric dams were constructed, great plains converted from farms to reservoirs, and whole regions completely transformed. Today, the river is a prominent transport system for grains and oil. It is still one of the most important rivers in all of Russia. Unfortunately, it is also extremely polluted and is struggling to deal with the international issues that plague modern-day Russia. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Join me next time when we cover a really tasty topic, Russian and Soviet cuisine. And I'm really looking forward to it because I have so many stories of my life, you know, eating Russian foods and the different things that were involved in Soviet and Russian cuisine that I've learned about over the years. And one, my favorite story, and one that always brings a smile to uh, my wife, is a story about Kasha in New York City. So, until next time, das vidanya y spasiba za vinyamanya.